Hello, I'm Howard David Ingham and this is Birdcast, the podcast where we discuss the work of Nigel Neal on television, film and radio. For this episode, we were once again honoured to get horror expert Andrew Screen, writer of a forthcoming book on Nigel Neal's beasts and over a responsibly distanced three-way internet conversation Andrew, John and I discussed that time when Bernard Horsfall strangled two television scientists in a single week, the part a toy poodle played in one of television's most chilling scenes, and how Doug Bradley feels about all those Hellraiser movies. This is Birdcast. So the next episode we look at would be The Dummy, which in my notes is simply titled Neil's Revenge on Hammer. Uh, <laughs> I, sus- I suspect that's not a, a unique perspective. But um, is that something, is that, a, is, that, is, that, is that an opinion you'd share, Andrew? Uh, uh, I would say so, uh, definitely. Um, I, think, I think he's working through a few grudges and he, it's been it's quite cathartic for him. From interviews that I've read about Beast, there's, there's not many of them, but when he mentions uh, the dummy, he's, he's always very pleased about it. He always thinks it worked out quite well. So you can see he's got a soft spot for it, definitely. I mean, he did five, five films with Hammer. If we include the Quatermass experiment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, had him put into four of them script-wise. Yeah. So he was there from the very start. Uh, and in some ways, he he can be credited as helping to create Hammer to, you know, for what they became, what they became famous for. And, and in, in a way, help kick off that sort of 60s, 70s heyday of British horror films. So I, I think he's, he's justifiably entitled to take the mickey out of the things. I think one of the things he looks at quite, quite a lot is the coziness of it all. So, you know, you've got you've got the tea mate, the tea the tea lady there on the set making making brews for people, and you've got mm. you've got the the visiting actor of the Monsignor who's only there to say his lines, and then he's off on holiday. Um, and 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 he's a peer, isn't he? He's got a knighthood. He's like a, a actually so respected, so yes. respected old school actor, which I think is quite an interesting touch. No, it's Sir Ramsey, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's off to the Caribbean, whatever. Yeah. And what what I find interesting is um, the, the main character, Clyde Boyd, who, who's the dummy actor, to me, there's a touch of uh, Brian Don Levy about him in some ways, where he's, 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 there's, there's, there's a, an over-reliance on drink and some issues there. So I'm not sure if, if Neil's basing a little bit of of the character on, on Don Levy and having a bit of a, getting a bit of his own back because he, he wasn't a fan of Don Levy's um, characterization of Quatermass. He's also, I mean, as well as whether he's saying it, the um, because he, he makes Burnt Horsfall's character, who is a Clyde Boyd, quite sympathetic, if pathetic. Um, <laughs> but he's clearly got it in for Hammer as a representation of the state of the British film industry at that time. This is meant to be what the sixth dummy film they're doing. Yes, that's right. Yeah, um, it's, it's clearly got a state of. Well, I mean, like Scars of Dracula would be Alex Jones. That's, I think, the eighth movie, um, Plenty of Hammer fans, but the Scars Dracula is fucking terrible. Um, is and, it really? Uh, I've never seen that one. <laughs> the one with Patrick Troughton as Clove, and it's, it's, it's utterly wasted in that, in that, in that terrible role. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you, we, we've now passed a time when America's doing things like Carrie and The Exorcist, um, and, and Hammer's sort of churning out this shit. Um, long yeah. past um, its heyday, not really 
against the world. Um, as you know, as, we, as, we, as we're now into you know, crap horror um, sequels and sex comedies. That's yeah. And the, the, I, I love the uh, the characterization of his um, Sidney Stewart played by Glenn Houston, the, the, the director, who's who's doing you know he, he's, he's he's doing a function function job, but there's there's no passion there. There's no there's a there's a there's a, there's a workmanlike process to, to 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 get it done. I mean the scene they're filming, which is the dummy, which is giant snot monster that's that's going to unconvincingly kill the the, the grave robber. Yeah, it's just gonna like lurch around like yeah, a bad Doctor Who monster. It is particularly bad Doctor Who, Doctor Who monster, but it's um, it's it's the lackluster nature that no one cares. The death is so it's set in sort of gothic trappings, and it's yeah, it's it's it's, it's having to go a hammer, but it's it's a wider dichotomy as to as the quality of but the actors this place produces, but the, the the terrible state of the film industry, which is why I think the um, the producer. Bunny, Bunny, yes, Clive Swift, Clive Swift character is the nastiest bastard on the run. Yeah, he just plies, he's just he, manipulative, he, isn't he? Yeah, he just, like, he just yeah. plied, plies, uh, plies Boyd with with vast quantities of scotch just to get him on there. Tells this, or tells him all this crap about method and makes it the most Stanislavskian beliefs possible that he's that he is the dummy and he creates and he transforms and that, rather than just basically you're you're a monster. And I'm, and with obviously as we see with the with 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 with, with the tra- with the tragic consequences, but you know, he says we're old friends, but you lose touch. We know exactly what he's doing. It's you know he's he's mm. he's, 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 he's manipulating him, and it's like you know, pointless money men. So uh, yeah. yeah, it's a. Uh, that's that's interesting because um, that's the antithesis of of what you always hear about Hammer as the Hammer mm. family as yeah. a, a very friendly place to to, to work. Um, you, you know, Peter Cushion mentioned it lots of times in interviews and. It always crops up in histories of Hammer that, about the Hammer family, which is interesting. So perhaps Neil's experiences of working with Hammer weren't weren't he wasn't welcomed into that family. We don't know, but um, he certainly he certainly really doesn't like it. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a sense that the way in which everyone on set sort of knows each other, apart from like the interloper, the woman who turns up and essentially by simply psychologizing throws everything off there is a sense that it is a family but it's a dysfunctional exclusionary family an abusive family mm. and so you can sort of see it's, it's almost like he's sort of like i'm a family <clears throat> and really kind of <laughs> attacking that idea in fact um and i mean i as i mentioned before i quite like the idea that they've got you know, a legendary knighted actor of the stage and screen of years gone by, who's clearly just here to do a few lines for a laugh. He's doing a favour for someone. Doesn't need to do this. You know, if he doesn't get the scene and he doesn't care, they'll recast it. And they've got him in because they want him on the poster. Mm. If they don't shoot my scene today, they can take my name off their nasty posters. (laughs) Yes, exactly that. And that he knows full well that he's there for the poster and nothing else. Yeah. And and yeah. there, you know, and that's a thing, isn't it? I mean, this is how Alec Guinness approached Star Wars. Actually, he didn't know it was going to be a monster international hit. He just thought it was going to be some like crappy little B movie that he was going to do for contractual obligation purposes. And then Star Wars became huge, and he resented it for the rest of his life. But it's a similar sort of thing, isn't it? Really. It is. I mean, they introduce um, it by the sort of the tried and trusted method of there's an there's a, as you say an interloper, an outsider, um, mm. 
Jolie Skate, the, the journalist, played by um, Lilius Walker, who's uh, Sister Lamont in Terror of the Zygons, Doctor Who fans. Um, and is it the PR guy, Mickey or Mike someone? Um, and he has the, uh, the, the initial uh, info dump and it's like, oh, the customers don't really care. And then he sort of intro introdu introduces the characters. And then you have that, um, she goes around and interviews people and you find out it becomes layer and layer and each character gets their moment in the spotlight. By talking to her, you reveal them, them as, uh, as, 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 as who, who they are. Uh, except she doesn't do that with, I don't think she does that with Clive Boyd, does she? She doesn't have a moment with a dummy. And it's, no, uh, she doesn't get to meet him because they dummy. won't let her. No, they won't let her. But she has that really good chat with, with Bunny uh, and Clive yeah. Swift talk, talks about masks and the, the, um, the, uh, what, the, the, the real psychology behind you know, what you become when you're when he, concealed. When you concealed yes. yeah. yeah, and then he yeah. has an idea from that mm. where he convinces Boyd to talk him in based upon a sort of garbled version of what she said and, and Boyd goes entirely off the rails. Yes. The, the character of uh, Clive Boyd is interesting to me because he sort of, he sort of reflects actors that we know of in this day and age, you know, such as uh, Robert Eglund in Freddy Krueger, the guy who played Pinhead in... Doug uh, Bradley. Doug Bradley, uh, yeah. Doug Bradley in Hellraiser, where they're sort of, they're, they're trapped for, to forever don a costume for more and more sequels or for fan appearances. Yeah. And, and I think, I think Clive, Clive Boyd is a sort of a precursor of all this in some ways. But I guess, I guess at the same time, you did have you had um, Christopher Lee, who was who was frightened of being pigeonholed as Dracula for Hammer as well. We did it eleven times, I believe. Eleven times, right? Okay. More and more, more resisting, more and more times each time. Is Robert yeah. England particularly resentful, though? Do you think of you know, Freddy Krueger, or does he embrace? Does he embrace it? Does he? People can go one of two ways. I think they can either be pigeonholed for a character and celebrate that to all its worth, you know. That's that's a, that's a pension that he's got that, he, that he's got now in, in from, yeah, from yeah. the cult from the cult and convention circuit. I know Doug Bradley's pretty happy about it actually, right. even though he's not Pinhead anymore. He was Pinhead eight times, I think. As I think there's ten Hellraiser movies and he wasn't in the last two. But yeah, Jesus, when you when there's so many Hellraiser movies that even when you get to the stage of Hellraiser sequels that even Doug Bradley goes, no fuck this. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Well, I think I think it's because Hellraiser Nine was so horrendously bad. Oh, was Hellraiser Nine? Script. Was Hellraiser Nine bad? <laughs> yeah, I mean, once you get to that point of diminishing returns, right? <laughs> even Doug Bradley looked at it and went, no. I think I might have started on Hellraiser Four. Is that Bloodline? Yeah, uh, that's the one with the haunt. It's with the spaceship that turns yes, out to be puzzle box. The spaceship, that's right. And then I didn't make it all the way through that, and then I've never seen them ever since. I mean, the third one. I mean, the third, the, only the first three got theatrical releases, didn't they? The third uh, first four. The first, oh, got and releases, and then from five onwards, it's straight to video. Right. And three five, is terrible. Three, three is terrible. Um, in fact, it's fair to say that the Hellraiser franchise entirely loses its way about 25 minutes before the end of Hellraiser 2, where, like, it's just the bit where um, Kenneth Cranham, having turned into a Cenobite, comes in and slaughters all his patients with the words, the doctor is in! Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is just, you just go, right, no, sorry, no. Sorry, Nigel Neal fans, we'll, come, we'll go and get off Clive Barker in, in a second. But, um, it's never coming back. No, I mean, I mean I've, I've got him. Sorry. Yeah, of course. No, no, I'm just, no, I'm just, I'm just, that thing was controlling 
Kenneth Cranham, who was controlling... Do you know what? It doesn't matter. Fuck it. No, it really doesn't. doesn't. I mean, he's got a pipe in his head. I yeah, mean, but wait, just... who's, controlling the, who's controlling the pipe? I don't... And I haven't thought about Hellraiser 2 for ages. Talking through beasts and does it is infinitely more interesting. And sorry, the dummy has, the dummy has uh, entirely sidetracked us. Uh, in something we will almost certainly edit out. <laughs> that's, I think um, that's my fault. <laughs> Maybe we can keep it, actually. I don't mind. No, okay, as, I think we can edit it just after the point we say that there's a similarity between Clyde Boyd's career and those of who play returning horrific monsters like mm. Freddy Krueger, like Pinhead. However, the dummy would seem to be a harder sell in terms of character um, than Freddy Krueger or, 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 or Pinhead. I mean, there doesn't seem a huge amount of acting required for Pinhead. It's it's quite po-faced and that. But there's no okay. We're just, you know, um, One so. might compare him more to Kane Hodder, mm, who, yeah, uh, yeah, who played yeah. Jason several that's times. Right, yeah. yeah, that's a fair point. You know, and again, he's yeah. behind a mask as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't actually have to act. He just go wander around with a yeah machete. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I've got I've got here written down the the titles of the dummy screens that are featured in the play. All right. Oh, so, amazing! The, God. The, the dummy. Mm. Horror of the Dummy, Death of the Dummy, Return of the Dummy, Dummy and the Devil, and Dread of the Dummy. So they, they sort of mimic the, the decline of the Hot Hammer franchises, mm. just, just, just in the, their sort of titles, and, and perhaps more modern equivalents, you know, like the Hellraiser films. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, essentially, the Hellraiser movies, you think about them, they, they kind of just, they, they just have ridiculously nonsensical titles, after a while, it's like Hellraiser 3, Hellbound, and then it's Hellseeker, which is, I think, Hellraiser 6, and it's just like Hell on Earth. Yeah, they just yeah. they just like include the word Hell all the way through, and just because they can, and they don't mean anything. Well, Hellbound can, presumably, that's still a reference to the Hellbound Heart, which is the novella that... Barker yeah, wrote, okay. wrote, 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 but, Fair um, point, but once but, you get past that point... Yeah, but also, this is the, the dummy films, we're in the mid-70s, there's no home entertainment market here. There's, yeah. no, there's no straight to DVD. There's no streaming services. All these are getting theatrical releases. All these are, are what the British film industry is choosing to, to buy cinema time with. And they'll be getting a theatrical releases on next to an American movie, probably. Uh, on a double bill. On a yeah. double bill, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So these are B movies in an era that still had them. We also um, look at who's probably my favorite character in it because this is a great this is a great one for for for, 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 for spotting lots of people and it's um it's uh peter who's the dummies um uh, the actors ex ex wife's new lover who's in oh, who's that, yeah. who they've just cut who they've just cast in the film just to simon, Oates. Just, simon Oates, uh yes yeah. from doomwatch yeah, uh, yeah playing pretty much the same character as he plays in doomwatch and i don't know whether that's <laughs> Simon Oates' career. I haven't, I haven't seen Simon Oates. I know he played Steed on stage in a, in a theatrical oh, really? version of The Avengers. That's um, right, yeah. He, he uh, also was a, a singer and a stand-up, stand-up comedian on the right, club okay. circuit for oh, okay, quite a while yeah. as well. Definitely, I think he was definitely an actor who had a bit of an ego, and mm. I think that's reflected in the, the sort of oath of a character that he plays as well. It's another one of Neil's horrendous male characters. Which is quite interesting, but I think also you need. I think we need to we took you know sort of mention um, Bernard Horsfall as yes as a dummy. He's absolutely sublime in that scene where he undergoes that change and becomes a dummy. And when I talked to the uh, cameraman Roy Simper, 
he did say that Bernard Horsfall was in the costume at all times. Really? No stunt, um, not stunt no, performers or no, anything. No, no stunt performers. It was actually Bernard Horsfall. It That's was amazing. Bernard strapped in to the costume on wooden uplifts to make him seven foot. And he must have sweated so much for that role, <laughs> as we can see wow. at the end. <laughs> and, and unlike Clyde Boyd, Bernard Horsfall is a, a, an accomplished character actor um, who, of course, is a famous bit with one week before he strangled um, Simon Oates, he was strangling Tom Baker. On, on, Impossibly on, on the most infamous strangling on British television. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> just a, w- a weird coincidence that Deadly Assassin Part 3 uh, was the week. So this was well, this is around the same week, I think, as Deadly Assassin Part 4. So we're watching who's... <laughs> Which TV scientist is Bernard Horsfall strangling this week? I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you rather have been like Peter Wager? He's got presses on her. Just watch him use it. Flashing the big charm, eyes, jaw, shoulders. He grace any stage. <laughs> Poncing about on his old ego trip till he's as old and crazy as Sir Ramsay out there. They think they're magic just because they can learn the lines in Hamlet. Is that what you wanted? No. Well, that's them, that's all they are. But you're something different, Clyde. I don't think you've ever known yourself. I've tried. You work in another dimension altogether. What do you mean? We never thought about it. We just let it happen. We've never talked about it, but we felt it. So did all those other people all over the world. Yes, yes, they must have. You don't need lines written down by other men. Other people's thoughts to repeat. That's not the way it works. It happens somewhere deep down, like going down into the sea, where words don't function anymore. The rules are different. Pressure. Receptivity, awareness, and on that level, you reach us. Somewhere, 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 somewhere on British television. But, but frustratingly, you only get um, his his story is only told when talking to Bunny, and it was the other way that the the characters will show off and um, explain themselves to 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 Joan, uh, you only get Clyde's pleadings to, uh, to, to Bunny, um, who's, yeah, whose only job is to, is, 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 is to manipulate or create um, for, his, for the very specific purpose and then it all goes wrong. So who is the real beast in, 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 in this story? Is it Bunny? Or is it the beast he creates? Mm. Oh, or is it man? Is it, is, is it about the duality of man? You know, the, the hidden beast inside us all. I think, I think that scene where Klaus Swift, Bunny, is, is playing, playing Boyd of Whiskey, that's, there's, got, there's something of a, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's very neatly tied in with putting the mask on and becoming, becoming the beast. So mm. by, by that, he's unleashing the inner animal in himself, perhaps. So perhaps uh, Neil's saying in this one that the ultimate beast is mankind, is man. Because because the dummy is is not is not based in reality at all, is it? I guess so. It's, it's... no, but he, he, no, but, he but he but he uses it as a, he uses the costume as a trap, doesn't he? When Peter goes in with a shotgun, 
and he spots the dummy. Yes, yes, he, that's he shoots, true. But, he, but he's not in the costume anymore. And the real beast, I suppose, is 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 what's now been created, is what now is what now inhabits Clyde as he as he kills as he as he kills Peter. Um, yes. I also love the way they, they like they've got to build a deliberately shit set so that the dummy can destroy the set, and the set is destroyed really easily and looks and looks terrible. And that's it. Must be fun <laughs> building a shit film set as a set uh, was with the, with the, you've, you've got to the office you've got to show like the boom mics and the, and the cameras yeah. it's got to be deliberately shoddy and it's made of cardboard and bits of plywood holding together the cardboard and... yeah but if i mean like if they were doing it anyway because like, obviously that is a that is a sound studio isn't it because they've got the elstree yeah. um atv atv studio it's atvs yeah so, yeah. so with, it's it's where they were shooting anyway because yes. then, then you've got the exterior shots of the studio, which is clearly an exterior, which is clearly done on location. You've got the passageway, haven't you? So yeah. uh, behind yeah. the studio mm. where they, they can truck in and truck out all the mm. scenery. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's very meta in that way. Mm. And it's quite interesting. Just the other day, I watched uh, Inside Number Nine, the Christmas special. The, oh, the, Christmas, oh, the, the Devil oh, of Christmas? Yes, yeah, the one with the, uh, the Krampus, yes. That's right. And um, I watched it with a commentary, and they were talking about uh, that they, they actually filmed on the same set as Beasts. Right. As, as, a, okay. as, a, as a, I think as a bit of a tribute in some ways. Which, That's really uh, interesting. Only yeah. they would know about, I guess, yeah, unless you hear sure. the commentary. But there's, that's meta as well. That's a very meta episode. Oh, that's why um, they, got, they got Graham Harper to direct that. Because he was about the only, right. only director working at the time who'd worked on multi-camera studio setup. Yes. And, and the yeah. thing had to be done on multi-camera. It had to be done like a like a like a mid-eighties. Yes. Yeah. Indeed, 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 mid seventies, mid seventies production. That was. I remember watching that when we first saw that. I think that was that was I think it was preview for the the BFI. And when the first hear you first hear Derek Jacobi. Um, speaking, I was like, I, I was like, I thought that's what it was. I thought, are oh, they going to do this as like a joke, a joke commentary? But then he gets him to rewind a bit, and I was like, oh, this can't be a commentary because you wouldn't do, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't rewind somebody off and say, let's watch that bit again, and then really not knowing uh, what was what was going on because because his commentary becomes then more 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 sporadic. Um, but it was but it was brilliant watching that watching. <laughs> You pointing out like every Doctor Who fan when watching, or pointing out all the like you know the, the blocking, or the or, yeah. the or the or the bits of scenery that that goes wrong, or when someone someone doesn't hit their mark, or when there's a booming shot, and that. and it's all very jolly, and you're you're lulled into that false sense of security mm. before you see the end. And if you haven't seen the end of, 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 of the Devil, of no spoilers. We're not no, going to spoil no spoilers. No spoilers. We'll spoil the hell out of beasts because we're, we're just doing that as well. <laughs> yeah, the truly horrific ending. It's forty-five years old. <laughs> I mean, what one one of the things about uh, the dummy is that compared to compare to some of the other episodes, it it, it it is complete on the page on the in the original script, and there's hardly any changes. Interesting. Or additions. Is so there, it goes is, from A to B, motors along, and it is transferred as almost as it is. That is interesting. Page. So tell me, what, 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 what have you got in the way of those wonderfully terse character descriptions? Um, well, I've got, I've got one for, for Clyde, Clyde Boyd himself. So when he's first introduced, Neil uh, describes him as, Clyde's own face appears not much above the level of his huge built-up shoulders. It is a thin, fairly sensitive face, and the expression on it is one of acute wretchedness. Clyde's eyes are hollow and haunted, and his mouth is pinched. 
he looks like the man in the depths of depression, out of which he has been partially stirred by his bout of anger. That's pretty straightforward, actually. This, this, it seems to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what struck me about it is that it does, it does actually resemble Bernard Horsfall. Hmm. Yes, he has that. Yeah, he has that complexion, doesn't he? He does. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think uh, this was particularly um, unchanged from the original script? I mean, is that is that not typical compared to the other episodes? Uh, they they've all got little bits that have changed, but I think this one, out of all of them, because it's in the, perhaps because it's it's the biggest one, of the biggest cast. It's an ensemble ensemble piece. It it's not changed as much. What what um, I mean, what big eyes? When we talk about that, there's there's, uh, there's changes to that. McGee has uh, evidently been given free free reign to 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 come up with some chunks of dialogue. But this one just seems to be fairly straightforward. It's certainly very effective. Yes. Yeah. And this it, was meant to be Neil's favourite, wasn't it? He's definitely got a soft spot for it. He's, uh, he, he's, he's, got, he's got an affection for it because he always mentioned it in, in interviews that I've managed to track down. But he doesn't, he doesn't, he, he didn't get asked about beasts a lot. It was mainly Quatermass, to be honest. So there's not that much material. So next up is What Big Eyes. Probably, is it fair to say this is the most overlooked? It's the one? I think so, yeah. yeah. It, it's lumped in a lot with Buddy Boy for some reason. People don't get it. There's no big hook for it. But I think um, what, what Neil's doing here is trying to do something different with the werewolf story. He's, um, he's exploring the origins of, of lycanthropy. Yeah, I mean, it's got, um, I mean, it's the themes of werewolves and mad scientists is, is pure horror, but it's done in a very, very interesting way. Yeah, well, what, what I think what he's doing, he's actually taken the, the, the original meaning of, of, of lycanthropy which was the definition was um, it was a psychological condition where sufferers believed to have the ability to turn into an animal. And I think that's what he's running with here rather than the, the teeth and fur werewolf that, that was, you know, been around since year dot. So I, I, I've got a bit of a soft spot for this, but mainly because of the cast. You've got the three main cast there. So you've got a young Michael Kitchen playing Bob Curry, the vet. You've got Patrick McGee playing the uh, shopkeeper uh, come, yeah. come the pet, scientist. The pet shop owner, isn't it? The yeah. pet shop who, owner. Who, who is, and it's one of a long line of bonkers, bonkers <laughs> guys played by Patrick McGee, isn't it? Definitely, it is. yeah. But, yeah. And also, and presumably your third is, is um, Madge Ryan. As the, Madge Ryan, as, that's as, right, yeah. As, as the daughter. Again, yeah. we have another highly abusive, dysfunctional relationship only this time between a father and a daughter. Yes, yeah, uh, a very destructive relationship. I think there's a key, yeah. key line where she says at one point towards the um, towards the end, where she says he took all my life and used it up and wasted it. She's full of resentment and bitterness at the end because she believed in him that he was going to turn into a werewolf. But yeah. right, but the, the right at the end, you have that um, that bit where the body moves or there's a yes, sound yeah. and you don't know it's left ambiguous as to is you know that's just expelling of gases is that just a shift is a whatever happens she immediately switches back and was like oh my god it's true it's true yeah. it's like yeah. oh, it's so horrible that, that, that this you want to believe so much that this person will um 
you'll clap your clutch onto anything. It's, well, it's it, it, in in the script that that it, it's it's actually written as being a bit more explicit. So there's okay. you know there's, there's 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 a bit more movement beneath the sheets, and and Neil you know describes there is animal sounds, sniffing and growling. Ah, okay. So it's far less ambiguous than what you see on screen. Yes. So it's made it's made much more ambiguous. Now that was probably worked out again as when they were doing rehearsals, and it was felt perhaps that they needed to to make it a bit more ambiguous. I mean, um, the, the, you've got Donald McWinnie is the director of this one. He's he's been around for years by this point, doing theatre and stage work. He he'd worked with McGee previously on a. I think it was a 30-minute theatre episode of Crap's Last Tape, which is the play written specifically for, for McGee by Samuel Beckett. Right, yes. And yes. he'd also directed uh, Michael Kitchen in, in an episode of the ITV anthology series Country Matters back in 1973. Is that a spin-off to Hamlet? Or I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I think it's just a, a, an anthology of Rural-based dramas. <laughs> um, Pretentious crap. I was coming out with there for the, the, the country matters line, which is essentially Shakespeare making a dirty joke. Right. Okay. Yes, so. Oh, I. Oh, I see. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Actually, I've, I've, I've looked. I've looked up. I've looked up country matters. Oh, blimey. Yes. Oh, it's it's like um, H. E. Bates stories and things. Ah, oh, right. Variety. Okay. Okay. Well, there will be a bit yeah. of there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no one else is gone. Anyway, yeah, he's a he's a, a director as well. Um, but the um, the setup so, to the sorry, go on, go on, yeah. So yeah, uh, so so I think I think he's, he's McWinnie and the cast working really well together, and they they they've sort of smoothed it out a little bit, perhaps made it a bit more subtle. The the other thing is that McGee's got quite a few bits of dialogue, some. Some lengthy speeches in some parts, which are not in the original script, so they've they've evidently let him fly, so he can so he can chew up a bit more scenery. <laughs> um, was he always in the frame for for, for for this for this part? Do you think that's difficult to know because I don't I've, I've got access to casting sheets, but it doesn't really give me alternative uh, actors that were that were in the frame. It's just uh, actors it, that have been confirmed. It, so, it sounds like McWinnie probably had a had an eye for. I for think so. Yeah, but I think one. Yeah, one of the things I've written here is um, McGee's like a he's like a sinister Albert Steptoe, right. in some yes. ways. Uh, you know the scruffiness of him, and none of the smoking that McGee's smoking all the way through yeah. in the episode, brandishing cigarettes, referring them to to them in dialogue, even I think. Right. Um, none of that is in the script. So I think all works out in rehearsal and characterization there. Yes, yeah. So where where does McGee begin and the, the character he's playing? Uh, Leo. Leo, M. Leo Ray on the end, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Another slightly aside from this, which I think uh, Mark Gatiss picked up when we when we talked to him, he used this as an example of um uh, Neil's skill when there's a you know, there's a, a dry piece of info dumping that has to be given, that it's given by the by Michael Kitchen's boss while he's on the phone to a woman trying to coax down a, a, a cat from a tree. So, it's, <laughs> so the, the info dump is interspersed with, we'll give it a source of milk then. And there's, there's a, a lovely little bit of inventiveness there as well. Mm. Um, as, far as, as far as I'm aware, the production went, was fairly straightforward. According to the, the TV Times, and a little article at the time, it was 
they had a little sort of side box um, mm, mm. article with the, 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 two, the, the episode listing. Um, apparently the real wolf that was hired for the production went hysterical for some reason. Yeah. So it had to be replaced with a powdered down Alsatian for, for filming the scenes where Kitchen sees, sees the, the timber wolf in the, in the backyard. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I read that, um, in fact, I learned from this one as well, is that Madge Ryan is actually older than Patrick McGee. Oh, really? Yes. She was, she was actually what, sorry? Older than Patrick McGee. Yes, she was. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, which is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in fact, well, uh, it's a, I think... Leo, Leo's character is meant to be about 70. It says it takes he's 70 in the script. And I think he was, he was only 50, 54, 53 at the time. God, was he? Okay. So, yeah, the, the character of Leo is meant to be 70 in the script, but he was actually only 54 at the time. Uh, right. Florence's character uh, was said to be about 40, but she was actually, she was only a little bit older. She was 57. She just mm-hmm. turned 57 in January 1976 when it was filmed. The sets, I, I really like the sets as well because, as you alluded to, like he's a he's a step toe. You've got the um, the, the similar setup in there, in his lounge, that little lounge, solid, squalid little lounge area, which is quite akin to Oil Drum Lane in in in, in step toe and some. But then yeah. he stepped through there into into the laboratory. You know, there's <laughs> a huge contrast in in what he's in as well. And there's something there's something really sinister, I think, about um, in the middle of this unkempt little shop. Upstairs, you have all the what you would expect of the the the, the, the bric-a-brac, and then just through that door is a pristine laboratory where sinister, horrible things happen, and where a laboratory has no business in being. Mm. Have you did have you spotted the uh, the little werewolf joke in uh, the study? Oh, by the way, no. No, uh, uh, there's oh. a poster of the night the Hammer Werewolf film. That's amazing. I um I think the performances of, of Michael Kitchen and Patrick McGee in this one are really interesting. I mean, Patrick McGee, I guess you could say that he plays like bonkers guy again. But um, I had recently seen Lucio Fulci's version of the Black Cat, <laughs> oh, <yeah>. which um <laughs> is uh, doesn't really have a whole lot. Base a whole lot in common with its with its Edgar Allan Poe source material, apart from a bit five bits from the end, but um, where they walk, where cats walled up in the but the the cat and, and the cat the cat spoilers the cat is the killer, um, but but Patrick McGee plays the owner of the cat and he's he's a scientist and he's chewing up the things but again doing experiments and stuff and you have that kind of hauntological technological kind of thing going on as well as him sort of losing his marbles over the top of it, which is quite, it's quite an interesting, um, interesting kind of juxtaposition as well. It's, it's, it's a similar mm-hmm. sort of thing going on. And it's got Mimsy Farmer in it, who, who is uh, legendarily lost her shit in 70s movies a lot. That's basically what she was known for. And then she gave it up and became a set designer and wound up, did she get Oscar nominated or Oscar winning for Guardians of the Galaxy? I forget. Really? But yeah, she know, worked on Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy and yeah. did really well. Mm. Um, so wherever you are right now, Bibsy Farber, we're behind you. Uh, but yeah, um, but then Michael Ketchin, his performance is really interesting because he's essentially playing the same guy that he's pretending to be in Brimstone and Treacle okay. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Okay. Is he? I think so. Because in Brimstone and Treacle, he's, he's basically Satan. 
No, he's literally. So he's literally Satan. Yeah, he's, he's in, Satan in, or, or he's Satan or one of the greater demons who is pretending to be a nice young man. Um, he's, he's no, I think I, I, I'm not sure about that. In in Brimstone Treacle, he's deliberately he's being Mary Poppins. He's trying to be. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's okay. No, no one else uses the he uses terms like spick and span. Um, it's this ersatz um, level of helpfulness. Within, in here, he's, he's being a considered professional and he's looked down at by both the people who uh, run, uh, that he runs into through his RSPCA work as being a naive busybody uh, because he's young and older, uh, more cynical heads um, are, have, have that opinion. But he's trying all the way through to, to do the best thing. If he, yeah. was, if he was a bit, a bit more anal about, about things, if he was a bit more overly nice i could i could see that but i think he's i think here he's he's very nice though he is but he's also he's also really trying to 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 to, to, to put things through there's almost like a sleuth thing between the scenes between the uh, kitchen but i wondered if you had any particular thought howard on um uh when he talks about the grandma vaccine and then he relates the red white a good tale and describes what well, well, this isn't a folk tale it's a folk memory oh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and there are probably thoughts to be had on um, how people deliberately or otherwise, um, when all are not all folk tales, folk memories. These are oral tales. They're changed. They're updated. They're augmented. They were never. They weren't written until centuries after they were. They were. They were. They were. They, 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 they were told. Is he trying to recreate uh, modern folk tales? Oh, well, there's the thing, really, because actually a lot of folk tales. It's kind of a, it's kind of a generally accepted thing that folk tales weren't written down until centuries after they were composed. But it's not as simple as that. Um, that when these things were written down, they actually bore very little relationship to the source material, um, to the oral traditions they were based upon. And the oral traditions are much more fluid than we think they are. So folk memories, they're kind of, they're kind of less a game of sort of that's a sign of like solid memory and more a game of sort of broken telephone, you know, okay. where everybody sort of, you know, you whisper, everybody sits in a circle and someone whispers a message in the ear of the person and they whisper it to the next person until he comes around to the beginning. We see how different it is. People familiar with people familiar with the, uh, the, the unacceptably problematic reference to what we can't call broken telephone now. Well, yes. Something, yes. A, 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 a ethnicity whispers. Yes, that one. That one indeed. Um, you know, I, 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 although I think the, the American administration wouldn't have a problem with it. Yeah. Lots of people on Facebook will moan about you fucking snowflake. You can't, you can't, even, you can't even say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, whatever. It's called that game with the whispers. Anyway, um, the, the point being that um, these... <laughs> In, in, in the context of the play, I don't think that's actually a problem. I don't think the problem, the sort of idea of folk tales being folk memories, I don't think holds a lot of water. But at the same time, the person telling you that is explicitly unreliable mm. and batshit insane, in fact. <laughs> yes, I think he calls it, he calls it a case history. Which is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like calling it a Red Riding yeah. Hood, a case yeah, history. Just, that's right. Um, yeah. Which is bonkers at the same time thinking about it when i was a kid in the early 80s 
the earliest version of Little Red Riding Hood I remember I remember reading, Ride, Riding Hood gets eaten. Right. Okay. As she did in the when it was written down in the 18th century. And at some point across the 1980s, versions of Little Red Riding Hood have started appearing in books where, you know, the woodcutter appears and saves her and stuff like that. I don't know when the woodcutter first appears, but again, Broken Telephone, again, things change. Okay, these, these stories change and people change them all the time. Which how it can't be a case history. But, you know, he's since, since he is what, 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 what a psychological professional would describe as completely around the bend, he kind of it doesn't matter in that respect in fact you know if neil was actually trying to sort of present it as as a true thing being said by this character is automatically problematic because of the nature of the person saying it who's clearly unhinged you know and and um yeah you can call me a snowflake but i'm using a lot of ableist language here right <laughs> i wasn't serious about mental health so right no no i no i'm just saying i'm just saying I might be, I might be like horribly politically correct with the with the name of a children's game, but you're using all sorts of all sorts of terrible things to talk about being mentally ill. You're not fucking um, cancelling me, Howard. <laughs> I get cancelled all the time. Um, but yeah, the um, yeah, it's it's just not. He's just not reliable. He's doing some. He's doing terrible things to animals because he's gone wrong. And, and he's, so, he's so convinced. I mean, he's actually injecting himself with that. With, and, and himself, yes. Yeah, with, with wolf, if not DNA, simply wolf blood or a serum, yeah. serum taken from the wolf that he's just decided to test on himself. And obviously he's not well, presumably because he's actually got septicemia, mm. uh, which presumably would happen if you just started injecting yourself. With well, blood quite. Blood from another creature. Wolf, three of them at least. That's all the entries. Chief Inspector Nash. He said they weren't resold, so I. All right, put her through. Kitten up a tree. Oh, we used to hear a lot about Leo Raymond, the great scientist. Scientist? Well, self-styled. He's just an amateur crackpot, always trying to get his name in the papers. Hello, Mrs. Uh... Oh, still up there, is she? Oh, dear. Um, offered her milk, have you? And fish. Well, they all like fish. Of course they do. What was his line? Hmm? His line? Eccentric pronouncements, sir. You know, evolution, Darwin got it all wrong, etc. Uh, look, Mrs. Uh, why not try fish? Boil up a few pilchards and, and let her smell them. I, I cross swords a few times with him in the local press. About evolution? No, circuses, animal training. He had some very peculiar ideas. Look, Mrs. You don't uh, suppose those wolves had... Yeah, well, give the fish smell a try. Um, Wave the pan about under the tree. Trying to tame them or something like that, just to prove that it... <sighs> Joe, mm? those wolves, old Raymond, do you think he could possibly have been... Now, look, Mrs. Try out the fish dodge, and if she isn't there down in five minutes, I, I'll, I'll come round there myself. Yes, yes, of course. And yet, yet the fire brigade, too, if necessary. But he's, um, he's also obviously not well with regard to his relationship to his sister as well, and the way he... Daughter. Daughter, it's his daughter. Sorry, yes, daughter. That's why I was talking about her being older. Yeah, he, older. Yes, yes, yeah, sorry, daughter. Yes, uh, he's also not well with that, with the way he, he, you know, it's a, it's a horrible relationship. It's an overbearing, horrible man. And Quite in he, common with with the rest of, of a lot of the relationships in this series. It, yes, yes, indeed. Uh, and 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 Neil, his little thumbnail 
uh, sketch of of Raymond because you've got oh, yeah. that scene where you don't see him at first; you hear his voice as, <laughs> as when Bob. Oh yes, yes, comes before in, he comes in, catch up then, at first. Yeah, um, and and uh, Florence calls up for him, which which, <laughs> which also reminds me of the League of Gentlemen with the the Tubbs and Co in the corner shop in some ways. Oh yeah. Um, mm. I'm not sure if they got some inspiration from that or not, but um, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, so you, you don't you don't see uh, Patrick McGee's character at first, but the way Neil describes it is uh, he describes Raymond Ray's uh, Leo's voice as the hectoring voice of an aging bully and that of a man who hates the human race. So I think I think that's sort of quite interesting mm. summary yeah. of the character. So the final Beasts uh, with the cover is, well, it's certainly, if, if not the most famous, then it vies for during Varty's party as, as, yes. as, 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 the most, as the most famous. It's, it's Baby. And oh, yes. God, that sound. That sound. Oh, God, is, yeah. is it half, halfway through? You, like, it's when she's in the, in the woods looking for the dog. And it's, oh, that. I mean, it starts... As it, as it means to go on, it's, it's, it, it seems incongruous initially, but you know, the two, the, the two men who are working on the house, they find the bird's nest, there's but the eggs and the eggs are, the eggs are adults. You know, well, it sets its stall out uh, early, early on. Sorry, in, not the dog, the cat. In some ways, we're, we're, kind, we're kind of back to moraine territory again. I mean, yeah. it, 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 the plot involves vets, um, there's, yep. there's, a, there's a cursed land. There's witchcraft going on. But it's all about curses. I mean, vets seem a useful shorthand for scientist who has a justification in being in a rural area. Mm. Yeah. Even I remember ages ago, how I did a, a podcast looking at well, it's the, the new hammers, Wakewood. He's a vet. Wakewood, yes. Yeah. So he's a highly educated person that has a, justi- has a justifiable reason to be in a rural setting. And they usually represent. Uh, the um, the the uh, the rational against against what they're saying. Except here, he's not the focus, is he? It's Simon McCorkendale who will turn who will turn up again in in, in our Eastern Films quite um, mm. But the focus is very is 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 very much on his wife, Joe Joe Gilks. Joe Gilks. Yeah. Yes. Uh, played by uh, Jane Wymark. Jane Wymark, the the daughter of Patrick Wymark. I'm sure some people who like who like beasts have probably seen Blood and Satan's Core. Yes, but I, would I think a lot that. of them. I think possibly mo- most of them. I would yes. imagine. Yeah, um, it's, it's funny you talk about Gilks. Uh, he he is an obnoxious. He's probably the most obnoxious male character in the entire series. Oh, he is an absolute arsehole. He really is. <laughs> isn't he? You know, he really is. Like you watch him just like for the moment, like he'll like it's all about him. Yeah, even even at the end when he's like, "Let's get out," and she's desperate to get out. It's nothing to do with her. It's and he's no, and it's 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 him throwing his toys out of the pram because he's angry because he's been humiliated by his boss, and then he's, he's whipped back into it like 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 like, like that. It's, when he's so angry. childlike. Yeah, he's he's honestly he's 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 so childlike and he's easily influenced, petulant, and he's 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 the ultimate. Um, he's. His character and his actions lead to that ending, and lead to the 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 the, the fatal stuff that goes on for for Joe. Yeah, he blatantly um, lies and said, "What have yeah. you done?" Yeah, because they the 
the, whatever that is, the baby, whatever that is in the in the pod that they that they find, he gives it to he mostly gives it to um, uh, Dick, played by Dick Dick Pomeroy, was brilliant, yeah. <laughs> played, like, like magnificently, like everything, like by teaching the camera. Yeah. Yes. Um, and but the bag is something something like really like the bag splits and rather than just throw it away, like, oh, no, I'll give it to you, I'll give it to you tomorrow, and then hides it in in the nursery. And by this time you know that nothing nothing is ever born on on the on this land. Um, yes, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, uh, and you know well well, well Neil describes the thing that they find in the jar um, as like a mockery of a birth. And it, his description for, for Peter Gilks is um, tall and might be described as loose-limbed. It applies to his character as well. Oh, that's nice. So he's back to his, you know, he's back to his pithy, pithy two-sentence descriptions again there. Yeah, loose-limbed and it mm. might apply to his character. And uh, Dick Pumry is, is, is summed up as being insensitive to man and beast. So. His wife there, played by Sheila Fraser. Uh, yes, uh, yeah, she turns up in loads of things, but uh, but generally best members aren't. Uh, yeah, as as Luke Skywalker's aunt, Aunt Beru, I think in, in Star Wars. Uh, oh she, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. But she's oh, she's she's in loads of things. I remember probably yeah. spotting her in Doomwatch. Yes, yes. Well, she's she's described as cheerful, totally unimaginative, but practical woman. Which is not how she comes across on on screen, actually. No, I mean she's. I suppose she's sensible in in the sense that um, she makes she tries to to make Joe sort of feel at home and give sort of advice. Uh, yeah. As well. But by the end of it, she's as drunk as everybody else, and, and yeah. not re- and not and not really listening. And by that stage, like you share the hysteria with Joe because you've seen there's something in the house, and you see, and it's the most chilling bit. Works perfectly in context. In the way that you know the shining is about space and it's not quite working it's just the way that the the, the shape in the background moves mm. out of the room and then in a, in a subsequent shot there's no there's no exit there yes yes yeah. but, it's, but I, I still come back to the sound the sound she hears for the first time i'm looking for sorry i said dog earlier she's looking for the cat which is a hopeless task the, the, the best job she's in the wood looking for the cat and she hears that sound and i'm well, sure we'll play that sound in as as originally scripted that that scene didn't take place at the pond. Right. So she finds the cat and then she sets off back to the house and then the the dark shape comes and she hears the sound and she starts running. So I think they changed it because it was just better to stage it that way yeah. at the pond. Mm. Uh, condense the story a little bit, but but just made it neater altogether. And I think that that's that's that that's that's quite an effective sequence. It makes my hair bristle. Mm on the back of my neck and you just know that that something's not it's not going to end right for anybody in um in this episode uh because of that and it's very again it's very i mean our james uh christmas ghost story kind of territory um, yes the way it's staged mm. but also mm. what's always struck me about baby is that there's a the, the dreamlike atmosphere of it all it it, it, it puts me in mind of japanese modern Japanese horror films, such as Ringu, in some ways. It's yes. Got that, it's got that kind of okay. ethereal quality to it, almost, in some ways. Well, 
Um, it's so folk horror, isn't it? Fear. Yes, and it's that lingering sense of fear afterwards you get with it as well. I think yeah. Ringu is actually quite a good comparison. In a lot of ways, you have... Because um, Ringu is in, in the book... In, well, I wrote a book about folk horror. I, d- I don't know if you know that. But in, there's a bit in the book where I mentioned, I mentioned Ringu as a Japanese example of folk horror. Yeah. And Ringu has the body of a creature um, locked away, bricked away somewhere. It has hidden, hidden in a, ah, hidden in a secluded yeah. place. Yeah. Um, it's well. coming out. It's in the ah. well. Yeah. They put Sadako, who's not really human. She's sort of like half human, half spirit in the well. Mm. And obviously she cannot be buried in the well. Um, and the well and the cottage wall pretty much serve the same sort of role as a space where a thing can enter the modern worlds. Because um, one of the things about folk horror often is that you have modern technology, even if it's period modern technology, being invaded. And, and in the case of Baby, it's you know the medical knowledge of the vet. The vet is the classic folk horror protagonist because it's someone who's scientific, who's forced to be in a rural setting and has to apply the trade of science and of modern technology in a rural setting. And I think that clash is there. So I think Ring is a really good comparison. Okay, it was a very long-winded you. way yeah. of saying it. <laughs> um, yeah, so a few things I've found out about uh, the episode is, again, it, 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 it translates really well, practically almost intact plot-wise from, from, from script to screen. Uh, a few things, of, the other bits of sort of trivia I found out about it is that um, apparently there were some issues with the filming. The the director, John Nelson Burton, according to Neil in one interview, fell asleep as they recorded towards the end of recording the episode. And so um, Nicholas Palmer and uh, Neil himself had to step in to finish directing the episode. Um, wow. I'm not sure if there was some if John Nelson Burton had some health issues going on here, because right. um, he didn't work as a director again for another three years after after directing Baby. That's right, an episode of General Hospital, and that's and that's it, isn't it? That's 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 yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So perhaps there was some health issues going on there that we don't know about. Hmm. Um, and 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 the other thing is that apparently they weren't they weren't prepared they didn't prepare enough for the uh, manifestation at the end so you've got the, the thing in the rocking chair yeah that's right. fine that was made that was prefabricated and made apparently when it came to it cradling the the thing from the jar the mockery of life they had to step in and and uh, neil right. talks about that um the familiar in the arms of the witch was actually a small poodle and Neil claimed that he, he did the job of making it up alongside Nicholas Palmer, adding little gloves with chicken claws on and, and putting a bit more of a wig on. So you've just got that brief shot of the, of the familiar and, you know, being animated, turning its head and stuff and, and, and moving a little bit. Right. So despite all that, despite those, those, that, that, that whatever went on during the production uh, towards the end, it, it's, it, it, 
did not affect what comes across on screen at all. It, it, it's, it still sends shivers up my, my spine every time I watch it, that, that last sequence. And I've got a friend who can, who can recreate that noise. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a fucking practice. <laughs> <laughs> he clears pubs. Uh, <laughs> it's... Um, yeah, and still scares me that noise. I can feel my. I'm just thinking yeah. about. It. I can feel my. I can feel my hair bristling on the back of my neck. And it's. Um, I mean, it's. It's so well. Um, uh, Premium. Um, foreshadowed. Sorry, it's, it's. I'll do that sentence again. It's so well um, foreshadowed. Is it um, Grace, the uh, one of the two men working on the. Mark Dignan. Mark Dignan. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because he's got that lovely two-way with um, uh, with, with with Joe, and it's like you know, it's uh, if nature wouldn't bring it about, then such as that might serve. Is the line? And it's like yeah. It, yeah. It, it was created uh, somehow. Right? That's there's there's there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing natural that they could like, yeah. Yeah. The, the, like someone wise and then powers to cast them and fix them. That little boot you found. That's the way to hold the power to bind it. A thing like that, it had been suckled. Yes, yes, human suckling to set it to work. Fucking hell! That's, that's <laughs> absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Uh, there's yeah. a reason for its reputation. Yeah, it's, basically, it's utterly terrifying. It's utterly ter- and all the more Chilling. because uh, of her isolation. Because Sergeant yeah. is completely oblivious to anything. To anything going, even when he sees the thing. He only sees it as a as a scientific issue, and then it doesn't become it doesn't become uh, a thing of importance in the way his job and his happiness is. And, his, and, and, and T.P. Buchanan is there in order to make him worse, as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, I think it's interesting. Nigel Neal um, often brings up sexism. Um, thinking how similar this is in some ways to the stone tape yeah. in terms that you have an isolated yeah. woman you have surrounded by men who are blokey and doing their bloke things and essentially gaslighting her out of existence um yeah i mean there's the, the, the sort of in jokes with the two guys within the house that you know i'm knocking off early or do a bit of diy yourself did you or um you know a cup of tea on the go is there you know there's sort of that 70s joke about you know british work british working classes are lazy and, and, yeah um, but, uh, but at least they're friendly and, and she's the only one that has a sort of real interaction with her there's the but there's the sort of the gentle humiliation of her sitting in a rocking chair look at her there with, with her. no one no one means any harm and i'm not um probably not going too far into in, into this for psychological reasons but childhood members of my of my docker father and his friends uh, being the only sober one in the room is, uh, mm. is, is, is an uncomfortable place, place to be when no one means you harm, but they, they but you're still the only sober one in the room, one. yes. And they, and they react in different ways. It doesn't have to be that. I mean, I've, I've, been, at, um, uh, I've, been, I've been at a wedding uh, two days out of hospital, so I was still on a lot of medication and you know, uh, being, being, uh, being stone cold sober at midnight at a wedding horrible place to be in an entire way but at least here you're in your home you're surrounded by familiar faces mm, yeah. and, they're, and, they're, and they're different they're different and that's that's really and you can't get through to them and they can't understand 
and and your eyes to this. Well, uh, that that's also picked out in the dialogue of that scene as well. I think uh, I can't quite remember it correctly, but what what T.P. McKenna's character says, but he says, "Look at her in a rocking chair." And, yeah, yeah. Uh, singles her out, and that's when she she gets up, and moves into the kitchen, and uh, she sees that spooky figure. Mm. Um, yeah, it's uh, again it, all the way through beasts. It's 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 uh, it's one of the running themes of is. And and throughout, I think, um, yeah, as pointed out, it, through, through his wider work as well, this um, that it's always the woman character that knows has more of a sense, an idea of what's actually going on. Um, Indeed, yeah. And also, again, throwing into the mix again, the thing about um, uh, the woman and her child. So even though it's the unborn child this time, you've got you've got that you've got those hints that she's 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 been through this before, and uh, she had she had a problem pregnancy and lost about lost a child. So again, there's all it's all that sort of built in, nestled into the script again. I mean, there's a tremendous subtlety in the dialogue that you can like draw mm. these things out of it. It's just got this. I just love the economy of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, but yeah, I mean, yeah, you say economy, and, and and you're and you're right. But there's like there's the the, the sequence where Simon Corkendale smashes the um, the wall to get the to get the thing out. That that goes on, like that isn't a quick cut away in the shot. That goes on for a bit with him smashing, 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 and it, like, there's, there's no dialogue. Uh, there's no cutaway to something else as well. It concentrates on that. There's a there's there's a frosty to that which I found interesting. Um, Maybe they built the wall too well. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think sometimes, sometimes the, the beauty of these things lies in an alchemy, which is accidental. Um, I was thinking about this today because I, I um, recently published another piece on the Wicker Man. And um, one of the things I, I, that has occurred to me about the Wicker Man is that one of the reasons it's so great is probably kind of accidental. And a lot of the things that are great about the Wicker Man are not the things that Robin Hardy thought were great about the Wicker Man. And yeah. simply a kind of juxtaposition of different attributes. So the taking ages to go through the wall in Baby. And that seems actually quite effective because mm -hmm. it takes ages. Because it just goes on and on and on. But there's lots of reasons why that might have happened. The director mm -hmm. might have thought it needs to take ages. Or the director might have thought when they were putting it together... Um, oh, we're, we're 30 seconds short. Where can we mm. kind of add a bit to that? And it doesn't matter because what comes out is a really, really effective scene. But, but you know, these things just come together and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Sometimes you get a magic potion. Sometimes mm. you get yeah, Dr. Pepper, mm. you know, and it's just how it works. Don't they know what it was? It was in pretty bad shape. That can make it difficult to be certain. Oh, that's right. I remember a thing washed up. I said it was a sea serpent. Turned out to be a whale. All rotted away. Give it a neck, you see. Whales don't have a neck. I mean, what it was for. No. <laughs> he don't know either. It had a purpose. You mean bad purpose? Most like. That's saying it was some kind of charm? 
You see, if a thing wouldn't happen by nature, if nature wouldn't bring it about, then such as that might serve. To do what? To bring what about? How would I know? You talk as if you... You mean, make something bad happen? Could be that. Well, it wouldn't be anything good. There seems a sense that Neil uh, is certainly aware of the patriarchy and how these, this, you, can, you can do what you want to a certain extent without really paying too much attention or, or giving much effort to the wider world around you if you're a man. Things, yes. things, things revolve around you. And that seems to be used to heighten, to heighten, to heighten Joe's, Joe's isolation. Is there an argument that none of this is happening and it's just in Joe's head? Mm. I know it's not satisfying, but is it there? Oh, well, I know what my take is on this, but no, Andrew, what do you think? Well, I'm, I'm so taken in by, by watching, watching it. I've never even considered that. I've never considered that it might be part of a, a mental health issue that's got going on. Um, she's scared, she's isolated, she's yeah. unhappy. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not saying it is, but no one else experiences anything other than, other than Joe. It's focused, it's focused around Joe. And, every, and everything else is, is circumstantial. It'll fit, but that's often the level of paranoia. You can find everything to fit. Hmm. Uh, no, it's something I've not considered at all. I was so I was so taken in by the story and, and 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 interested and stimulated by the story that I've just not considered that. But what would be interesting is what would happen afterwards. Mm. You know, well, quite um, because of course it ends quite suddenly. Yeah. Um, and you don't know because yeah. they they can find and and there's nothing in the chair. At, yeah. At, at, yeah. At the end. Um, yeah. My my take is that it doesn't matter. Of course it doesn't. Because but, that's not the story. Yeah. You know, but it's but it's, it's, it's an interest, but yeah, nothing matters. But we're still we're still we're still, we're still talking about it. It's still and worth it's talking still about, about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's it's the same thing as what's the what's the the classic song? It's it's American Psycho, isn't it? It's, oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is did he do all those things? No, but it doesn't matter because that's not the story. Um, but I, I find it, yeah, it's a it's, it's a take that I think. Is left is left deliberately am, am, ambiguous. Although I accept the vast majority of people watching it will take it at the value of there is there is a there, is a, there, ghost, there yeah. is a there is a haunting, and her child will will, will die on board. But, I mean, it, it does follow the template in some ways of a, a traditional haunting story, a story about haunting, hmm. where there's always one central character that 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 sees what's going on or is impacted by. By these supernatural events, there is. But yes. in, in, in an M.R. James, you'll generally have a central protagonist who is the main victim of the the, the the haunting, generally by their own actions. But you'll involve a wider, I mean, a, a wider number of people because they'll they'll say, "Oh, what's so the treasure of Thomas?" I'm talking about the stories, not the not the long school Clark films, but saying the stories. You know, when they go to get someone else to put something else back, you know, he, you know, the the protagonist sees, sees the ghost, but he has a manservant with him who sees who sees the ghost, the ghost, the, the ghost of the abbot as well. It right. is unambiguously supernatural. There, yes, there is, right. there is a ghost. Um, here, I just, I just, it's, it's, it, I, I think it's worth picking up that all the haunting happens to happens to Joe, and in theory, it could just, it could just be in her head while she's distressed, anxious, 
isolated and, des and desperately unhappy and unsupported um, is told ghost stories by the older guy, the things fitting in, and she's and she's creating this this this, this narrative. I'm certainly not saying that's that's the only valid interpretation, but I think it is an interpretation. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, it's definitely valid. So, uh, one of the main reasons for having you on, Andrew, is because you are um, writing what I assume will be the uh, the definitive, the ultimate, but also presumably the only um, book on on the series of beasts. Is that right? Uh, yes, yeah. I've been writing it for uh, two years now. Um, not not quite as long as Toby's been writing his Quasar Mass book. Oh, I mean, oh, Jesus, is that what about that? Oh, fine, isn't it? Um, <laughs> oh, sorry, Toby. <laughs> no, I've been writing it for two years. I've been writing it for two years now. How did how did you how did you get onto it? Was it a case of I, I wish there was a book on beasts? There is. Yes, I've always I've always. Right, I to do one. No, uh, but, but what what Jeez, happened Jeff. was uh, I'm not I'm not I'm, I have another job I have another day job I'm not a full time writer, um, but I've I've written for uh, fanzines and um, ma semi professional magazines um, for quite a few years now um i've done i've done in fact i actually did the production notes for the original dvd release of the 1979 quater mass when it first came out on dvd um did you I, I, it is yeah <laughs> uh, and um uh, i don't think they credited me um, oh right um and I, I used to work for a magazine called uh, action tv i'd write for them so that was that was some of the people who did Time Scream. I don't know if you remember Time Scream. Mm -hmm. um, Mike Richardson and Andrew Pixie. Yeah. Um, they, they, they did another magazine called uh, Action TV. So I, I wrote for that and I ran the website. Uh, after that fell apart, um, I, I, I was writing, doing various bits for other sort of magazines and stuff. And I did a, uh, an article on Sapphire and Steel about the making of Sapphire and Steel which was part of a book uh, called the uh, Sapphire and Steel Compendium, published by Pencil Tip Publishing. Uh, and that, that was quite an in-depth making of, um, again, not a program that's been documented that much. Um, and from that, they, they said, w w would you like to write a book? Uh, you pick the subject. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so wow. I went, um, beasts. I'd like to do beasts, please, because... I like a challenge, um, uh, and uh, nothing's ever been written about it, or nothing much has ever been written about it, uh, and I'd, I'd like to write a book about it. But I hedged my bets a little bit. I, the book was also going to be a study of the history of anthology horror television series. All right. Uh, and Beasts would be sort of the centrepiece of it, uh, because I wasn't sure how much information I'd be able to turn up on on the program and what's happened is uh I've, I've i've dug and i've found more and more stuff as i've gone on so that 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 history of television and following series has now been jettisoned from the book that'll be a separate book probably at some point cool in the future um incidentally that's and, my next podcast idea is <laughs> anthology series yeah. oh excellent yeah right <laughs> and uh, when we're what, done when we're done with nine and uh so what 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 I've um, what I've done is I've, I've yeah I've concentrated just on beasts, um, 
and I've uncovered more and more and, and, and I've had lots of help from people which have been, people have been really generous with their time, really helpful. Um, Toby Adoki put me in contact with David Simeon, which started the ball rolling on Moraine and getting lots of material for about Moraine. Um, and another another uh, person I've, I've I've met through social media, uh, Julian Jones. He's he's the person who confirmed where Moraine is uh, filmed. Uh, oh yes, and, and introduced me to the to the area. Um, Andy Murray's been incredibly generous and helpful as well. He's, um, he's, he's, he's great, Andy. Um, he's, uh, he, he let me know about the existence of a potential production file on, on Beasts. In the um, Nigel Neal archive, was that? In, in, the, in the Nigel Neal archive, yeah. Which oh, is in Douglas on the Isle of Man, is that right? Oh, yeah, Douglas yeah. on the Isle of Man. And that, that really opened up the book for me quite a lot. Because that that's got lots of uh, material, cast lists, uh, memos from the producer, uh, the all original scripts for each episode, some of the camera scripts. Um, so I've been able to look detailed at each episode and how it's been made and its journey to screen. Um, also in there, um, which will be in the book, will be. Um, uh, there were free further treatments for free unmade episodes um, of Beasts. Was this for a potential second series, or was that were they? I think they were six of nine extra. Right. They were, they were they they were all done as I think it was just treatments which never got picked up. Um, having read them, I can see why as well. One, um, uh, one one's more of a social satire along the lines of you know, the Sex Olympics okay. and the Big Giggle. Mm-hmm. Um, still, we're still trying to use things in the Big Giggle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, one's more of a satire and uh, about media and social, you know, social satire and media. One's, one's very, one's very J.G. J. Ballard in some ways. Okay. Um, um, and, and the other one, I just don't think it would have been feasible to make on uh, an ATV budget. Um, also in there, there's, there's a list of um, 22 proposed episode titles. So these are all being the book uh, in, in various detail. Um, and another person who's helped me a hell of a lot with it is Johnny Maines, um, okay. who's, who's guided me through the process of doing it, calmed me down when I've been a bit fraught, thinking, oh, what have I done here? I've taken too much on. Experienced um, editor, isn't he? As well, he's great. Writer. He's yeah. great. He's uh, is Johnny, and he's the one who pushed me to get in contact with the Neil family as well, because the book is using a lot of quotes from the scripts. Um, so I, I got in contact with um, Tacey and Matthew, and they've given me the full backing to use the scripts uh, and blessing, and they 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 they're really supportive for the project, saying that. Uh, uh, they, 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 they want stuff like this to be to be published because you know it keeps the, the dad's name alive um, so it, 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 it from a little thing from a, a new sort of startup publisher it's become a lot bigger and um, I feel a bit of, bit of weight of pressure on my shoulders to try and get it finished oh, I, can, I, can, <laughs> I, 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 I can imagine so how did you um, 
access the the the, the Neil archive? Is it where is it through the family? Is that how? Is that how it is? No, no, it's 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 actually owned uh, by by the uh, the Isle of Man, the archive, and it, it's 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 kept in. Oh, okay, it's uh, it's, it's held as a public by a public body. Yeah, it's right. kept it's kept in the public library. In, ah, in okay, right. Uh, so you have to get you have to get written permission off the off the library to access it and, right. and go and look at it and stuff. Um, so there's there's also files in there that I've noticed there's the files in there for the stone tape and a few a few other things as well. Um, so maybe another project at some other point. We'll, we'll, I'll go back and see what else is there. I don't know. So yeah, it, it's it's um, it's good. It's it's really good. So yeah. the the book the book is going to look at each. Um, episode in turn including Moraine uh, contextualize the episodes um, look, look at any contemporary reviews or stuff they may have that I can find uh, and also look at the scripture screen so that that'll be for seven episodes so um, I, I'm, I'm over halfway through it now so but do, you have a, do you have a date or you do you not want to say in case they, um, um, well, I think my my publisher should probably like it to be out tomorrow, but I, I, you know, um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't, I'm not sure what the date will be. Um, um, as I say, I, I, you know, I do this at weekends or, or during during the evenings, um, on, on top of my day work, and I've got I've got a family as well, so a bit of juggling has gone on. Um, right. It's fair to say there's going to be a lot of interest there when that comes out. So I see why you feel the pressure of it. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. I know there's going to be a lot of interest. So yeah, I'm really, yeah. really looking looking forward to that. Okay. Now I think we're done. So um, okay, we'll uh, well, I'll do the other intro. But basically, to say, Andrew Screen, thank you very much for your time and for your brain. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Burkhouse is presented by me, Howard David Ingham, and John Deere, and is engineered by Emma Cooper. Once again, we'd like to thank Caroline Champion for help given. Thanks for listening. Oh, 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 oh.